Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. The big political story of the last five years has been the return of right-wing populism, but the last 20 years in Latin America have been defined by left-wing populism, with a pink tide sweeping the region after the election of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela in 1999. With many of these leaders either dead or out of office, it's a good time to look back on the phenomenon. My guest today has been a BBC correspondent in the region since 2007 and has met many of the key players. His new book, Populista, The Rise of Latin America's 21st Century Strongmen, examines six huge figures. Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Lula in Brazil, Evo Morales in Bolivia, Rafael Carrera in Ecuador, Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua and Fidel Castro in Cuba. Hello, Will Grant. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Dorian. Really pleased to be here. Uh, Where are you now? Where are you based? I'm in Mexico City at the moment, but I live a bit of an odd existence between Mexico and Havana. It sort of depends uh, on where the story is at uh, any particular time. And so, yeah, I sort of divide my t- time between the, those two capital cities. And which of those these, these other countries have you lived in at some point? Well, the main sort of thrust was in Venezuela uh, during the years of Chavez. And that was, um, I, I sort of first got down there in 2007, which was for a pretty significant moment when he denied the renewal of a broadcasting license to an opposition uh, television channel, RCTV. And it's really struck me how uh, a moment that was, at least on paper, a relatively simple affair, you know, a TV license coming up for a renewal and then being denied by the government over its role in his uh, brief ouster in 2002 could um, sort of spark up such, inflame such passions. And the BBC back then had this kind of um, uh, freelance position within the the organisation, so you could go off and sort of cut your teeth a bit as a reporter. So I was a producer back then and, and, and became a reporter a bit more clearly in Venezuela. And so that was the first proper correspondent position. And it was uh, a real fascinating baptism of fire period uh, living under Chavez. He was just such a, a huge character and, and, and you were always in his fire, firing line as, as the media. So it was an interesting mm. experience. And then from then around the region, uh, up, down, left, right and centre, really. Because, I mean, all these leaders are really are sort of sceptical of, of the media, if not explicitly hostile. So what's it like? I mean, I've got a friend who's a correspondent in Brazil and has actually been sort of singled out by Bolsonaro at some point. What's it like covering covering these countries? Is Are you always considered to be hostile? I think that is one of the characteristics that all of the leaders that I identified shared to an extent. Now, what I tried to do in the book was set out to a degree some of the differences between the six men you mentioned at the top, because at least within the BBC, some very smart and switched on editors had begun, at least it seemed to me, to sort of lump everybody together as just the pink tide, as the, the left-wing swing in Latin America, like there was this big monolithic thing. There was no difference between all the characters. They were all just of the left. And in fact, when you stop, stop and look at it, there are huge differences between the motivating factors and, and, and the driving forces behind, say, Lula and Chavez. Uh, where Ortega comes from as somebody who'd been in power in the 70s to, you know, the bursting onto the political scene of uh, Rafael Correa, for example, the, the motivations of the coca growers who kind of brought Evo Morales to the fore is also a very, very different thing that borders on apartheid, the, the way they were living before he was in power. And, and that, you know, that's why they held him up. So to get back to your 
original question about the media. Yes, one of the characteristics all of these uh, kind of governments and, and populist governments in general share is an attack on the media. There is absolutely no doubt about that in my mind. It is quite daunting. It is quite uh, harrowing at times because you, you're not just singled out by the leader, of course. It's the army of supporters as well that come for you uh, and now online too. So, you know, it can be quite exhausting. But at the same time, I think living and working in these environments, it stretches you as a journalist like none other. Because, I mean, we've seen left-wing populism in other parts of the world in the past, uh, you know, during the Cold War. There were quite a few in Africa, for example. But if we're talking in like the last 20 years, why is Latin America so hospitable to to various strands of left-wing populism? Well, what I tried to do, uh, I think, was sort of set out the reasons that they all reached the point of power. As you can imagine, the military dictatorships of the 60s and 70s, uh, 80s even, were hugely influential on, on bringing these men to sort of political consciousness. Lula, for example, wasn't planning to be especially political as a young, as a young, young man. But the way that the military dictatorships had, for example, treated his brother, who was more politicized than him, uh, sort of uh, very much part of the Communist Party and, 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 a, and a fan of direct action. Lula was just a unionist who just moved further and further, the more he went into it, the more he saw that leadership uh, and that the workers have their own party was the way that Brazil c- could kind of push back. So, you know, that I think is perhaps why that these populist or even popular leaders. I think sometimes, you know, the the title is populista, populist in in, in English, of course, with sort of Spanish exclamation marks at either end. Perhaps sometimes it should be with Spanish question marks at either end, you know, the upside down (laughs) question mark, because I'm not necessarily sitting in judgment of all these men sort of saying, you're a populist, you're not. Lula said to me, and I spoke to him in prison in Curitiba when when he he went to prison for uh, corruption charges on uh, a case that was very much... uh, trumped up and you know it, it was very clear that it was a, a weak and, and, and poorly and illegally put together case which is why it eventually fell down he said to me in prison you know uh, there's a difference between popular and pop- populist and it's the same thing that rafael correa said to me from exile but nevertheless some of these men really employed the tropes of, of populism didn't they i think and and and, and I, I don't think i have managed to but nor did i set out to create a a nice, comfortable, fitting, working example of what what a populist is, or or, or or what populism is, because it sort of changes for each context. You've mentioned Africa there, and, and and I think there is a very, very different set of circumstances there. What I think it has involved is something to do with raw materials, uh, something to do with promising a great deal to people who are at a very, very vulnerable moment in a sense, or a very needy moment in their kind of political life a sort of fervent godlike status or, or, or deity almost being bestowed on some very fallible men. Yes, because left-wing populism does not necessarily mean socialism, even though many of these people would identify to some degree as socialists. It does seem to require this. And, and this is where, despite the fact that obviously the whole racial component of right-wing populism is is, is not the case here, but for you is 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 a sort of as close as you get to a definition of populism, is it that there has to be this sort of personality cult? 
Yeah, I think so. I think the key to me is that the individual supersedes the party very quickly and very, very powerfully. And we've seen that in a sense just, you know, these past four years in the US, haven't we? I mean, you know, we just saw Donald Trump Jr. yelling from the stage, this isn't the Republican Party anymore, it's Donald Trump's Republican Party. I mean, my mouth <laughs> virtually hit the floor. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it is applicable left and right. And I think that's the thing. All of these six men are absolutely of the left, very clearly of the left. Now, different kinds of the left, different shades of the left. That's why, you know, it got called the pink tide because they weren't considered Fidel Castro-esque communists. What they did over the course of their careers and their times in power and how they managed that power, you know, varied very much. Lula, who I've already mentioned a number of times because he is fascinating to me, became, uh, I think he's very kind of responsible social democrat but he himself too became intoxicated by power at some level, you know, handpicking his successor, who probably wasn't right for the kind of role that uh, of president, and then trying to run again from prison. Absolutely bonkers, you know. That's a really odd choice to make if you want your party to do well. But if you want yourself to do well, and you are obviously the most popular politician in Brazil, then you know it, it, it seems like a logical move. Obviously, some of the others much harder form of left and evolve to extreme autocratic points. They are absolutely of the left. We shouldn't lose sight of that. But I do think populism per se and the traps and the dangers and, and, and the lessons learned, you know, the, the situations are almost beyond the ideology. The daily struggle for most people in Latin America is tough and it's getting tougher. And it's getting tougher as their lands are being destroyed by climate change. It's getting tougher as their crops and you know animals are dying. It's getting tougher as urban life is a, is, is a misery. It's as inflation is rampant and poverty levels soar again as commodity prices drop. It, it's bad when they look at their ruling class and see the the rampant corruption uh, going on. Uh, and it's bad when when their family members are on the move and people are forced into migration and having to try and make it to the United States or even just the next, the neighboring country in order to make some form of hard currency that they can send home. So, you know, when that is the landscape and uh, that you're looking at and somebody says, you know, things are rough and I'm like you, you know, even though I'm in some beautiful suit, I'm like you, you're like me. You know, I do believe that and it's worth getting down, you know, on paper and, and, and in interviews and things that I, I think the original motivations of all of these men were honorable, you know, that they came from poverty by and large, not all of them, but by and large, and that they were motivated by a desire to improve the situations for their communities, their families, them, you know, their friends, their, their workers, their co-workers, you know, that, that they were, that when they turned and said, you know, I'm of the Pueblong, um, it, it, it was initially true, and that was their cachet. That was their that was their strength. But the problem is that these revolutions and social movements, not all of them, but quite often, you took away either the the strongman figure at the top or the high commodities prices, and then what was left, and things started to go south very, very quickly and unravel very, very quickly when you did either of those. Which of these leaders would you say was the most successful in terms of improving the lives of, of the poor? In, it, you know, even, even before it went wrong, who did you think could have said at a certain point, 
with with justification look yeah. i've done what i promised to do yeah i think if you just look at the start numbers alone you can't really fault lula's project or Evan Morales, in terms of pulling people out of poverty. There's no doubt that they did that. Evan Morales, despite the fact that Bolivia remained the poorest country in South America, pulled millions out of poverty in that country. And the, the lives of, of, of a decent number of people, a large number of people, improved significantly in that time. Nevertheless, things were still rough. And that kind of gives you uh, an understanding of the, of the very low base that they were coming from. Bolivia was very, very poor, particularly when he started. And, but he did make inroads into that. That was recognised by all manner of international groups and, you know, the UN. And it, There was a model there to be looked at and to be applauded. And the same for uh, Bolsa Familia, Lula's kind of key project, key policy, which was uh, essentially taking children out of working in the streets, as he had himself, and if they were staying in school, that they would receive a family, family stipend for that, the family stipend, Bolsa Familia. That pulled huge numbers of people out of poverty and was Based on an earlier, you know, his opponents are keen to point out that it was invented before him. Yes, there was an earlier version, but he was the one who gave, put meat on the bones. He turned it into a proper policy and it worked. It worked very, very well, in fact. Now, was it as unsustainable as his opponents like to make out and it was just chucking money at the poor? That very much depends on one's own kind of political position. But I think he gave me a really lovely quote about about people eating uh, tarmac and, and cement, uh, i.e. that they say I should build bridges, they say I should build infrastructure. Well, people don't eat tarmac and cement. They eat mm. eggs and beans and rice. So let's get them eggs and beans and rice. And when they've got that, they can help us build all the bridges and the, the buildings we need. And there might be a certain you know, simplistic logic from that. But but Lula was a simple, is a simple man in many respects. But there was a, there was a robustness to that policy, I think, that certainly, you know, he left office, not for nothing, the most popular, most popular politician in Brazil. I mean, he was knocking on the door of 90% popularity when he left office. And Evo Morales, you know, it's almost like everybody who was, who, who supported him watching in the left was, kind of cringing in turn, not everybody. I mean, he had a lot of very, very fervent supporters, but a lot of people were watching that going, this whole idea of staying on beyond, you know, for a fourth term is not a bright idea. You know, like you've done incredibly well now. Step back and let somebody else have a go, you know. I mean, there's like you said, they're sort of political beliefs and practices are ex- extremely complicated, no more so than Chavez's uh, early interest in Tony Blair's third way politics, which uh, was something that he did not stick to, I would say. But their reputation, obviously, in the region and, and outside is, and particularly in those early periods, you know, as sort of beacons for the left. And this is what is possible if you were, you know, do stuff for the working classes um, and don't bow to kind of the big, you know, business interests and so on. Is there something, do you think, even outside Latin America, where people struggle to accept that a reformer can become a dictator? They just, they cannot let go of the person that they thought this was, not suppose the person that they've become. Yeah, I think that's a really sharp question. And the reason I think so is that, um, you know, there's a lot of emotional, political capital that has gone into the in, into these leaders, uh, and I'm reminded of a friend's uncle who was a Paraguayan living in London, 
and had fled the dictatorships because he threw a Molotov cocktail during a, a protest and in the 1970s. And he was he found out he was on a list to be rounded up by Stresner. So fled, and uh, his sister fled from uh, with her Uruguayan husband, who's also kind of an activist. These were people who were fleeing, you know, genuine persecution from military dictatorships who had already murdered a lot of their friends, and they they ended up on the shores of, of Spain and, and and the UK and uh, the United States across across the world. And when they saw the resurgence of the left, something, you know, so they had to then live through the end of the dictatorships in exile. They then had to see these 90s Washington Craven governments take over because that was the only acceptable way that these dictatorships would give up power. And then it wasn't until Chavez and Lula and so on, this moment that they saw the kind of governments that they'd originally wanted, by which time, you know, they're in their 50, late 50s, 60s and so on. And I remember... You know, I was living in Venezuela, coming back and I was saying, look, there's more to Chavez that's, you know, than, than this simple idea that he, he puts, shows his middle finger to Washington and he gives, you know, he, he, he's pulling the poor out of poverty and he's of the Pueblo. Like, there's more to it than that. There's some really quite concerning moves toward autocracy and that, you know, his, his tolerance of, his, of opposition is worsening and worsening and his management of the economy is like, there, this isn't all good yet. And he just didn't seem to have space for that. And I sort of understood, and I came from quite a wine-infused dinner, kind of came away think, learning a bunch, actually, and understanding quite where that degree of commitment, come rain or shine, comes from. You know, um, It was fascinating to me. But certainly not everybody is an exile from a Paraguayan dictator. There are a lot of people who are simply attached to these ideas uh, without the flexibility, perhaps, of seeing that leaders change. And when they reach their tipping point of seeing that their leader has changed into some form of extreme autocrat or, or dictat, they, uh, they have a tough time with it. It's, it's emotionally difficult for them. Anti-Americanism is an easy sort of position for all of these leaders, sort of what, what, what sort of bonds them, explains a lot of their, their alliances. It's not always honest, but obviously uh, there is a long, a very long history. I mean, you, you do give a bit of a long view at certain points and you're going back to, well, at some points, the, uh, you know, Spanish invaders, um, but also kind of, you know, the Spanish-American War, many things America's done wrong. In which of these countries do you think that US interference is the most to blame for the mess they're in, that created a sort of an instability or a sense of resentment that, that allowed a strong man to come to power? And you can actually point to Washington and go, if you'd have just stepped back, we wouldn't be mm. in this place. I mean, for, we've talked a lot about the left and about decisions made in Latin America, but just to give the, the, these men their... <laughs> To, to give them their reason, as they say in special, to, to take their position for a moment. Something they are absolutely right about is Washington's shocking record in Latin America in terms of interference and involvement and, you know, damage. One could pick any of the nations to an extent uh, and show Washington's hand in meddling and, and hurting these nations. I mean, the, the role of Washington in Guatemala alone in backing uh, the Somoza family for so long is, is unbelievable. And therefore, when it came to the Sandinistas taking power, 
Reagan's absolute obsession with Daniel Ortega and, and the Sandinistas was was huge. I mean, he sent, essentially fueled a very violent, very painful war for a long, long time uh, that claimed many thousands of lives. So that's a massive one. And Cuba, I mean, one very <laughs> You mentioned the, the Spanish-American War, but I mean, Washington had under the Platt Amendment the right to interfere militarily into Cuba right up until 1933. It was allowed to, and did so on several occasions. It was also, you know, it had the absolute right of writing their constitution, of building their constitution. It was just simply a, a protectorate, really, an extension of of the United States. And even when they started to claw that back, so they you know, supposedly got independence at the turn of the century, but nothing like independence came along until the 1930s. And from there on, it, there was really uh, just Washington and Miami was just, you know, is just there was uh, able to, to meddle whenever they wanted and, and did so in quite shocking ways, propping up, you know, dictators like uh, uh, like Batista. So, you know, I, I think those two are the first and most obvious. But I mean, hopefully the book sets out Washington's, you know, pretty awful record uh, in Hugh, well, pretty awful, very terrible record in, in Latin America time and time and time and time again, you know. And finally, I mean, like you said, I mean, we love to talk about tides and waves, and yet there's lots of countries in that region, and uh, they, you know, by no means all of them sort of, you know, fit fit that narrative. And now it seems that there's a lot of conflicting signals. You've still got Maduro in power in Venezuela. You've got, like mm-hmm. I said, someone, you know, Morales in and out uh, in Bolivia. In Brazil, we've got this swing to to Bolsonaro. Do you see the region experiencing a clear new phase uh, that is going to favour a particular kind of political movement? Or is it in a kind of flux where, where actually each country has its own uh, direction of travel? You're certainly right that um, that we talk a lot about ebbs and tides, and I had to really be careful with too many nautical references in the book, otherwise I thought I was going to turn into this version of the shipping forecast. So I had to sort of hold myself back a bit. But yeah, you you're right. We do talk about how things swing and how things kind of tides rise. But I, you know, I felt like it was fair in, in in the case of the pink tide, as it was dubbed. But you you know, that's a really really interesting point. If I was to put my money on either, I'd kind of say the latter. I, I feel like, in a sense, this kind of collective whole, this idea that Chavez had and spoke about a lot and that other people, if maybe they weren't so committed to, were certainly happy to go along with. And then a lot of other countries were, wanted to go along with it too because, hey, there was oil money there to be tapped into. And that is of this united America under what some kind of Bolivarian alliance from sort of the Texas-Mexico border down, or in fact, including Washington and, and, and Canada, if they'd like to come on board. But, you know, a, a united Latin America, a united America, but united how? Under a very left-wing Bolivarian ideal. And there was a moment, that the absolute peak of that pink tide, that it really seemed like something was happening. You know, he'd created these new regional groupings. They were becoming stronger. They were weighty. Washington was distracted with the war on terror and, you know, it was all 
post-2009-11. Its eyes weren't on Latin America in any way, shape or form. And to be fair, haven't really turned back. I mean, I think Obama did to an extent because he had to... Uh, he was finding that the relationship with Cuba was blocking everything he tried to do in Latin America. So he decided to reset that, which I think was very smart politics. Very, 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 you know, the time was right for that. And uh, it's, you know, a, a shame, quite frankly, that, um, that that Trump, just because it was a, a policy that was created by his predecessor and he sort of wanted to unpick everything he did and take a sledgehammer to it all, has undone that. And one would hope that Biden at least rebuilds some of that. I think to your, your original question, those ideas of kind of collective swings, I mean, a lot, on the, a lot of people on the right want to say, ah, look, the pink tide failed. You can see that now because, you know, there's a, left, there's a right winger here and there's a right winger there and look, there's another right winger coming through here and ah, we've, got, we've taken, taken it back because, you know, the left failed. The left turned out to be as corrupt as, you know, as we told you they were. But it just doesn't really stack up. I mean, I'm talking to you from Mexico, where I guess a left-wing character is in, in, is in power. I mean, Andres Manuel López Obrador is, is a difficult one to pin down. His background is, is, with, uh, is of the left to an extent, because you know, in, in indigenous politics and then mayor of Mexico City. But he's also socially very conservative when it comes to abortion and, and, and things of that nature. You know, you've got an outright right winger in Bolsonaro. You've got the left back in Bolivia, as you point out. And then there's a whole fresh batch of new populists in Central America, Nayib Bukele in El Salvador, you know, young, hip, kind of wears his cap to the back, but also sends troops to stand menacingly staring down the parliamentarians on a key vote in Congress. I do think now that each country perhaps is sort of unmoored from its neighbours to an extent. There's nobody really talking about some kind of pan-Latin American vision, or certainly not that I've heard. And people are far more concerned about getting through this moment. Now, this moment obviously is very tricky currently with COVID, but uh, COVID really has given carte blanche to a lot of the more autocratic people in the region to, to impose even more frightening kind of clampdowns on the media. And uh, there's one that Ortega's put through that basically says anybody kind of funded from outside can be considered a, a, a sort of spy in all, in all essence. I know of a journalist who's had to essentially leave. Um, so there are some frightening prospects on the horizons and currently uh, being employed. What I think is that a lot of people have learned the lessons, both good and bad, from this particular moment uh, of the pink tide. And there's, look, you know, everybody thought Maduro was going to go and there he still is. Even uh, Trump was was rumoured to have called him a tough cookie because he thought, you know, they'd come to him with this idea that you can can sort of get rid of Maduro and that would be a big win for you, you know, and, and here are these opposition characters uh, personified by Leopoldo, Leopoldo Lopez's wife, an opposition leader who, who was in, pri- in prison under house arrest for a long time. She came to him and met him in the White House and stuff. And he was like, oh, these are the people who are in our trouble? Okay, well, let's back. And they made him think it was going to be straightforward. And they hugely underestimated the extent to which the military were on side in the Bolivarian revolution and were not going to budge. And there's a variety of reasons that that may be the case. And charges after office are are doubtless a big part of that, the potential for charges and and what have happened to people who have left and the prisons some of them have ended up in and exile and so on. But I think 
uh, yeah, I do believe that you make a really interesting point about each country now being on a sort of certain path of its own. And a lot of these leaders have sort of looked at the Venezuelan example and the Cuban example. I mean, you know, this the, the Communist Party isn't going anywhere and that the Castro legacy is that and think, well, I can do that here too. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Will Grant. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's a fascinating, complicated story. A great deal. I did not know. And thanks to you for listening. Populista, The Rise of Latin America's 21st Century Strongmen is published by Head of Zeus out now. Take care and see you next time. Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Bunker Daily.